Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. I want to share two passages of Scripture quickly. The first is in the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. The scene is the Last Supper. It is Thursday night before the cross. Now, we've been talking about the fact that the uh, disciples, Jesus said, you don't think the way God thinks. You think the way the world thinks. Now, if you will look at uh, chapter 22, you will notice that in verse 17, no, in verse 14, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now, he is within a matter of a few hours of the cross. And he knows what's coming and the suffering and refers to it. So taking the cup, he says, take this, divide it among you. For I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to him, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, This is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. By the hand of him who is going to betray me, but the hand of him who is going to betray me, is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Now you notice what they're talking about. They're talking about the fact that one of them is going to betray the Lord, the Christ, whom they love so deeply. Now you read verse 24. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. I don't know about you, but uh, that's sort of unbelievable to me. The conversation goes from his death, the institution of the Lord's Supper, the cup and the bread, to the fact that one of his own is going to betray him to a conversation, which one of us is going to have the top spot? Now, it's, a, it's amazing to me, beautiful to me in one sense, how the Gospels reflect the fact that the disciples still, they were thinking in our terms and thinking in our ways instead of thinking in God's ways. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 or chapter 2. And the tail end of chapter 2. Well, let's begin with verse 9. He is talking about what God has prepared for us. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. 
But God has revealed these things to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. Now verse 14 gets to what I want to point up. The man, my translation says, the man without the Spirit. Now, uh, the King James, I think, says the natural man. And what we're talking about, the word is sukikos, from which we get the word psychology. It is man without the quickening touch of God on him. Man without the regenerating touch of the Holy Spirit. Man without the new birth. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. For their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual man, on the other hand, and this is the pneumaticos man, the man who has the Holy Spirit touching him, makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as my translation says, worldly. The word is fleshly in the Greek, sarkinos. Uh, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as fleshly. You will remember Jesus said to Nicodemus, that which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. You are mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still fleshly or worldly, as my translation says, for I think the King James says carnal, for there, is, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, another translation is, since there is envy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow, follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not? Mere men. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. Our Father, as we come to your word, we thank you that you've promised to give to us your spirit, the one who inspired it and the one who interprets it. So somehow tonight, let that quickening touch of the spirit of God be upon each one of our minds and let us see things that we have not seen before, or let us see things clearly that have been hazy before for us. And Lord, let us have not the carnal, fleshly, or the natural mind, but let us have the mind of Christ. And we will give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we said that... Uh, the reason the church crucified Jesus was because of the fact he didn't come the way they expected him to come. 
and he didn't perform the way they expected him to perform. They expected him to come in power and in glory, and instead he came vulnerably, he came uh, humbly, meekly, he came in a serving role, he came sacrificing himself to the point of death, dying for a world. Now, that didn't fit what they had anticipated. Their thinking said it must be done one way, and God says, no, that'll never work. It has to be done another way if it's to be done. Now, the disciples, likewise, they forsook him. They didn't reject him. They forsook him. And they forsook him because he didn't perform the way they expected him to perform. They were still thinking in the old categories, though they loved him and were committed to him. Now, uh, he says, the only way the world can be one is by my coming to the place where I'm willing to be a poured out offering. I'm willing to, to spend and be spent. And if your lives are to be fruitful, you have to come to the place where you're willing to be a poured out offering to, to spend and be spent and let God do the spending. We said this morning that there is a universal law that not even God can make himself an exemption to, and that true fruitfulness comes out of self-sacrifice. And the text is uh, the two. One is in the synoptics where he speaks and says, if you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for the Lord's sake, then it will be saved. And the one in John where he says, except a corn of wheat, a grain of wheat, falls into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it uh, falls into the ground and if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Now, I suspect that is a supreme, the supreme battle in the Christian life after a person becomes a Christian and begins to follow Christ. Because there comes the question, now that I have begun to follow Christ, how far am I going to follow him? Now that I have begun to walk with him and to obey him, how far am I going to obey him? Now let me say, it's not just obedience that he wants, it's the thing that produces obedience. Faith and love, the trust that says, if he leads this way, it is the right way for me to go and I will dare to do it. Now the reality is that the experience of most of us is like what we read in the Corinthian letter where you will notice he says there is the natural man that doesn't understand the things of God at all. Then he says there is the carnal fleshly person and he says to these Corinthians that's you. Now if you read the first chapter of the Corinthian letter you will find that he says you are a part of the body of Christ. He refers to them as being separated to God and as being brothers. They are called by that word which is used in the Septuagint almost exclusively of Yahweh. They are called holy. They are called hagioi, a word which is used to describe Yahweh and is used probably only a half a dozen times in the Old Testament for human beings. It's God's word. Now he says, you are holy people. But he says you're not completely holy because there is a division within you. He said you are yet fleshly. There is something within you that wants God's will and there's something within you 
that always delivers a minority report. There is something that says, I want to be his and for his glory completely, but there's something that says, I want to take care of number one a bit too. Now, the two words which are used to describe them in this passage is, as far as the defect in them is, he speaks and he says that there is jealousy and strife or there is envying and striving among you. Now, the first word is a word which you and I understand very well. It's the word envy. Uh, it can be translated jealousy. It can be translated either way. It's when I look at you and want the privileged position that you've got and am unhappy with what I've got. Now, that's my reason for reading that passage in Luke. You see, now here they are at the institution of the Lord's Supper the symbol of his sacrifice. And Peter and John are saying, "What are which seats are we going to get? Which chair do I get in the kingdom? Which portfolio do I get? And there was jealousy and envying among them. And there was quarreling among them. So you will notice he says, envy and strife are jealousy and quarreling. The word quarreling or strife is a word which basically means uh, eris, a uh, Greek word which means to strive. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about striving for self-interest. Striving for what I want and the way I want it instead of what Christ wants. Now, he says, there's no question about your being believers. You have been born out of raw paganism. There were few cities in the world that were more uh, pagan than Corinth was. And uh, he says, you've been born out of that. You belong to Christ, but there's still a division within you, and you are still not thinking the way God wants you to think. You don't have the mind of Christ the way God wants you to have it. Now, there are a great many of us who've had uh, uh, an understanding of that kind of thing empirically. I'll never forget when I was younger and traveling about, I probably was 26 years of age, I found myself preaching for the pa the pastor in the United States that I respected more than any other man I knew. He was my own pastor, and he was a man that I knew had fearlessly done what he felt God wanted him to do, and sometimes at great personal cost to himself. And so as I preached for this fellow, he was an orator, gifted preacher, well-educated, had his Ph.D., was a, 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 a great man and a humble man. One day he took me aside and said, Dennis, I want to share something with you. And I was, I was astounded that he would do this. He said, uh, I've forgotten now how old he was. I think he told me he was 40. He was in his early 40s, maybe in his mid-40s. He said, I've moved up the ladder in the conference. He said, I now have a very lovely appointment. He said, the other fellows who came in the same year I did, they've moved up and we're the leaders in the conference. We're all about the same. But I know very well what's going to happen to me now. They're going to begin to shunt me off because of the fact I have a conscience that's troublesome to a lot of people. And he says, you know what I'm finding? I'm beginning to be jealous of the fellows that are headed for better appointments than I'm headed for. 
And you know, uh, he was one of my heroes because of his courage and his uh, manliness. And here he sits and opens up to me, just a young person, he says, there's envy in me of the fellows that are now getting the better appointments and moving up. And I am missing those. And he said, my conscience tells me it's because I have kept it clean on things that don't seem to trouble those guys. Now, uh, he looked at me and says, can God help me? <laughs> and let me tell you something. I loved him. <laughs> I revered him. And I revere him to this day. And I remember traveling 150 miles once to get him to baptize two of our kids because he was the kind of man that I wanted to do that kind of thing for us. But uh, who is there who has not at one time or another struggled with self-interest and says, Lord, I don't want to happen to me what you're going to let happen to me. And you're going to let it happen to me, and I don't like it. And so I'm resisting it. Now, this is the kind of thing that he is saying is a problem in Corinth. Now, there are a lot of people who settle down and live with those kind of things and never come to the place where they really find out whether God can give them complete victory over those uh, battles as they face them. The reason is that there are many of us who are willing to settle for something less than God's best. But you know, every once in a while you bump into somebody who says, no, if there is a higher road, I want to find it. If there's a better way, I want to find it. I want to know God's best for me. Now, uh, I've been interested in reading Christian biographies, and I suspect the biographies that I've read have influenced me theology-wise almost as much as any the, all the theology books I've ever read, and at some points, maybe more so. I've been interested in how many Christian biographies of men whose lives have cast long shadows, somewhere in their life have come to a place where they fought that kind of battle and said, Lord, I want to go where you want me to go. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to be wholly yours, and I want you to have the right to spend me the way you want to spend me and you can do with me what you please. Now, I find in uh, Jonathan Edwards' life a covenant that he signed, saying that was what he wanted. It was as if he took a sheet of paper, completely white, and put his name at the bottom and said, God, you can write in the details of what you want, and I'll leave it wholly to you. Now, uh, I find that that kind of thing in the... Uh, significant uh, uh, men in the last century, the end of the last century. One of the most influential Baptists that the Christian world had was a fellow by the name of F.B. Meyer. And F.B. Meyer tells very explicitly about after he had been in the ministry for a while. God began to deal with him and said, can I totally possess you? And Meyer said, well, yes, here are the keys to my heart. But when he handed it, he took one off and put it in his pocket. And the Lord said, uh, I thought you wanted to give me all the keys to your heart. Well, he said, this one is to a very little side closet in my heart, and it really is a very inconsequential thing. I'm sure you don't have to have it. 
Well, he said, you were talking about being wholly mine, and until you give them all to me, you're, you're not wholly mine. And he said, I began saying, now, Lord, you're not going to make a big issue out of anything. This is inconsequential, are you? Well, he said, the question as to whether I have total control over your life is not inconsequential. And then he said, I began to find out who I was. He said, I began to find out that I didn't want to give that last key up, that I wanted to keep a finger on my life, that I wanted to keep a little say-so over what happened to me. And I really was not free to just deliver myself lock, stock, and barrel into the hands of Christ. I was sitting inside of a fellow on a bus once years ago, and we got to talking back in the early days of black, and I asked him, I said, are you a Christian? He looked at me and said, well, I'm not the whole hog kind. Now, the language was not very eloquent, but it was very descriptive, you see. And uh, the Lord said to F.B. Meyer, if you're to be the whole hog kind, you've got to give me the whole bunch. And then he said, I found I was captive to that last key and couldn't turn it over. Now, uh, uh, there's the battle. And that battle is the one that determines whether we will think the way Christ thinks and whether we will have his mind and his sensitivities. Now, uh, if you've ever fought that battle, you're not alone. Because I dare say that every Christian who ever lived a Christian life very long somewhere fought it. You take the hymns of the church. Uh, take Edwin Hatch's, Breathe on me breath of God, Fill me with life anew, That I may love what thou dost love, And do what thou wouldst do. Did you ever notice the second verse of it? Breathe on me breath of God, Until my heart is pure, until with thee I will one will to do and to endure. Now Edwin Hatch saw purity of heart as willing having one will. Now uh, I'm an old Hebrew teacher, and Hebrew is it, its idioms are very graphic sometimes. Uh, in Hebrew, you don't talk about hypocrites; you talk about a fellow who has a tongue and a tongue. Lashon v'lashon. And if a guy's got a tongue and a tongue, you have to watch him because you don't know which one he's using with you at the moment. And you see, the one he uses at the moment may contradict the one he's going to use with the next guy that comes along. So a hypocrite is a guy with a tongue and a tongue. In one of the Psalms, the psalmist prays, Lord, save me and give me one heart because I have a heart and a heart. Lave the lave. I have a heart and a heart. Now, uh, at the end of it, he says, unify my heart. <laughs> unify my heart to where there's one heart inside me instead of two hearts inside of me. Now, that's what Edwin Hatch is talking about. Breathe on me, breath of God, until my heart is pure, until with thee I will one will to do and to endure. There are two wills in him. And he says, I'd like for those two wills to come together to where one reigns over the other and it's not mine that's reigning, it's yours that's reigning. And then my heart will be pure. And that's what I think is meant by blessed are the pure in heart 
For they'll see God and they'll understand God and they'll know his ways when we get our minority report out of the way and our dissenting inner voice. Now, now you remember the third verse of breathe on me breath of God. Breathe on me breath of God till I am wholly thine. Until this earthly part of me glows with thy fire divine. Now, that's an Anglican way of getting the baptism of the Holy Ghost with fire. (laughs) Listen, breathe on me, breath of God, till I am wholly thine, until this earthly part of me glows with thy fire divine. Now, what is the divine fire? That's the Holy Spirit, you see. Until I am filled with him, and then he uh, fills me, and uh, the fire burns within me. And that purifying fire that Jesus said, John said, uh, he'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, I'm interested in who it was that would pray that way. I read, I sang that hymn for many years and loved it. One day I chased down who Edwin Hatch was. I had a, a, a haunting suspicion because when I was at Princeton in graduate work, I worked under one of the top septuagintal scholars in the world, a man by the name of Henry Snyder Gaiman. And he used to talk, as he would talk about the biblical text, what it was in Hebrew and what it was when they translated it into Greek, and the influence of that on the New Testament. He would refer to Hatch and Redpath. Now, Hatch and Redpath is the concordance to the Septuagint. It tells you every word in the Septuagint, how it's used, it is a complete record of the of the text of the of the lexical uh, elements in the uh, Greek Old Testament, and so I chased it down, and that's the Edwin Hatch who wrote "Breathe on Me, Breath of God." Now Edwin Hatch was a, a, a church historical theologian who and biblical scholar who was on the faculty at Oxford. And he did some of the key, most significant lectures in the theological world in England. Now, one of those series of lectures was on the nature of the early church. Now, the world's authority at that time in theological circles on the, uh, on the, uh, early church was a man in Germany by the name of Adolf Harnack. And when Edwin Hatch delivered his lectures on the nature of the early church, Adolf Harnack says these have to be translated into German and they have to be translated carefully. So the most renowned scholar in the world took the time off himself to translate Edwin Hatch's uh, volume, his work on the nature of the early church. Now, Edwin Hatch was a high Anglican Oxford scholar who was one of the leading scholars in the world. Now, when he leaves his ivory tower to get out on his knees before God, what does he say? Lord, I'd like that heart and the heart in me shifted. I'd like one heart to where there's one will in me, to where I can, where my heart is pure and where your spirit fills me until I'm wholly yours. Nobody ever gets close to Christ, but there's, there's something inside him that says, that's right. That's the way it ought to be. Now, Lord, 
can you do something about the part of me that resists when I come to this moment? Now, uh, let me mention a second one in the hymnody of the church. We sang it a little while ago, Make Me a Captive Lord. Now, uh, it was written by George Matheson. George Matheson was a Scot, a Presbyterian, Church of Scotland, theologian, who gave to us also the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. So here is a man to whom all of us are indebted. He was a very brilliant theologian, a very gifted scholar, and a very gifted gospel preacher. The highest uh, laurel that can come to a theologian in the English-speaking world, probably, is to be invited to give the Gifford Lectures. And uh, men like Karl Barth, men like Reinhold Niebuhr, Paul Tillich, these are the kind of fellows that are invited to give the Gifford Lectures the best. Well, uh, interestingly enough, George Matheson was invited to give the Gifford Lectures. But George Matheson always had trouble with his eyes, and by the time he was 19, he was for practical purposes almost blind. And so George Matheson said, when he was invited to give the Gifford Lectures, I'm highly flattered, but I do not have the visual equipment to do justice to the challenge. So he turned down what other men would have given their lives, you know, for the chance at. That's uh, immortality in the Christian theological world. He said, I'm, I don't have the equipment to do it the way the lectureship deserves to be done. Now, that's the kind of man he was, but a very devout man. But now you listen to him when he prays. Lord, I want to be your captive. But if I'm going to be your captive, you're going to have to capture me. <laughs> Make me a captive because there's something inside me that when I tell you I want to be yours, wants to turn and run. I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid of what you'll do with me. <laughs> so he says, make me a captive, Lord. And if you do, I'll be free. Because you see, as long as I'm under my control, I'm slave to me. I'm made for a higher uh, for a higher relationship than bondage to me. I'm made to be a servant of God, and I'll never be free until I'm wholly yours. So he says, make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword. Now, by his sword, he means his own autonomy, his control over his life, his power to determine what happens to his life. Now, he says, force me to render up my own autonomy, my capacity, my power to determine my life, you force me to turn that over to you. Then if you do, I'll really be a conqueror because that's what you made me to be. It's interesting the New Testament says we are to be kings. We're called to be royal priests and we're to reign with him. We are children of the king. We're made for that. But he says the only way I will be that is when I get saved from self-interest. When, when I am cleansed from that perpetual what's in it for me. When I get free from that, then I will be a conqueror. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. 
Now that last line is an incredible line. You are the lover of my soul, Lord Jesus. You are the lover of my soul. And I love you. But I'm scared I'm going to run away from you. So will you put your arms out and embrace me so I can't get away from the one I love? Because there's something inside me that wants to flee and keep my freedom. So he says, imprison me within thine arms and strong shall be my hand. Now, uh, uh, that's the cry of a very literate, intelligent, educated preacher, theologian. You see, what he wants to be is to be holy Christ. Now, I have to share with you the third one of these. He was the, uh, he was a courtier. He was, uh, known for his, uh, liaisons with, uh, the women in the court in London. He was a slave to his lusts and his passions. And then Christ met him. And after he met him, he became the dean of St. Paul's in London, the, you know, the center of Anglicanism, or at least the great preaching church in uh, London. Now, here he is praying. Uh, one of the most brilliant men of letters in the 17th century. If you have ever studied English literature of that period, somewhere in your textbook there was some work by John Donne. Now, listen. Batter my heart, free person to God. For you is yet but knock. Breathe, shine, and seek to mend. Now what he's saying is, God, you may get away with it with other people just knocking at my heart. <laughs> or knocking at their hearts. Or breathing, or shining, or seeking to mend. But God, when you come to my heart, you're going to have to beat the door down if you get me. So he says, batter my heart, three person to God. His expression, of course, for the triune Godhead. In order that I may rise, that I may rise and stand, so I can stand, overthrow me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. Isn't that amazing language? You sense the power of the poet in him. I, like an usurped town, somebody else has stolen me. <laughs> Made for you, somebody else has stolen me to another due. I labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. While I'm trying to admit you, I resist you. Reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive. My reason is captived and proves weak or true or untrue. Yet, dearly, I love you. Does that sound like the disciple? <laughs> In the Gospels, it does to me. Yet, dearly, I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. I'm a town that you're supposed to own and somebody else has captured me. And I'm a bride that's supposed to belong to you and somebody else has got me. Divorce me. Untie or break that knot again. 
Take me to you. Imprison me, for I accept you enthrall me. Now, do you know what enthrall means? Thraldom, of course, is slavery. So what he is saying is, enslave me. Except you enslave me, never shall be free, nor ever chast, except you ravish me. Now, I challenge you to spend some time over that one. The only freedom, he says, I will, that is real freedom is when I come to the place where you've captured me. And there's something inside me that'll fight. But for goodness sakes, don't you let me win. <laughs> now, uh, I doubt if there is anybody who's tried to walk the way of Christ very long or very fervently who hasn't tread, trod that path and found something within him crying out, God, can you make conquest of me? Now, uh, you see, here is the carnal mind, reason captived, that keeps trying to find a way to accommodate, a way to get God to compromise, a way so that I can keep a finger on my life and not come to that place of being uh, dying to my way and being supremely his. Now, let's go back for a minute to that story of F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer said when the battle came over that final key to the final corner of his life, he said he realized uh, he, was, he was bound and he had no power to deliver it to him. He said he was hope helpless, absolutely impotent to uh, give it to Christ. And Christ said, uh, will you give it to me? And he said, I can't. And he said, that broke me. And then when he said that broke him, he said, I thought, do I break with Christ then? I can't do that. He's my life. What do I do? So F.B. Meyer in desperation looked up and said, or the Lord said to him, if you can't give it to me, are you willing for me to take it? Are you willing to be made willing? And finally F.B. Meyer said, what I can't do, Lord, will you do for me? And he said he took it. Now he said when he took it, he opened it up and he said to my horror, he began dragging out ghosts and skeletons that I never realized were buried in my life and in my heart. And he cleansed it all out. Now I love that story and I love it for this reason. Salvation is a work that only God can do. If there is any saving, it's going to be God that does it. And if I'm ever to be saved from me, I'll be saved from me the same way I was saved from my sins and forgiveness. I'll be, it'll be when he does it for me. He alone is the savior and he alone can break the power of self-interest in my life to where he is free to do with me what he pleases. He's free to spend me as he will. Now, uh, when we come to that place, I don't think it ever is easy. I think it is always traumatic, always painful. Uh, I found a passage in uh, C.S. Lewis that is helpful to me here 
and I've never heard anybody else use it in this uh, way, so let me run it past you. It's in uh, The Great Divorce. And if you've read The Great Divorce, you know it's about heaven and hell. And there's a bus that runs every afternoon from hell up to heaven. And anybody who wants to can go. And the people who go, if they want to, they can stay. Now, there are not many who do. In fact, in the book, I think there's one that makes it. And he's the one I want to tell you about. The rest of them, they'd rather be back down below than up there, you see. And so they go back. Uh, there's one that stays, and who is he? When uh, Louis sees him, he sees this fellow walking through the forest uh, in heaven, and uh, uh, he notices he's got a little lizard on his shoulder. And uh, the little lizard is chattering away in the guy's ear, and there's uh, sort of a smile running across uh, the guy's face. Uh, and uh, Suddenly, the guy with the lizard on his shoulder notices a heavenly creature that's there. And when he does, he says, uh, uh, excuse me, and he turns the other way to leave. And the heavenly creature says, must you go? And he says, well, uh, you know, uh, this he really is not appropriate up here. <laughs> uh, before I came, I told him he shouldn't come. <laughs> But he promised me faithfully he'd be good. But he hasn't kept his promise. And he said, uh, I really, I really better go back down below. And the fellow, the heavenly creature says, shall I kill him? And the fellow says, kill him. He says, well, you don't, do you want him? Oh, no, 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 of course not. But uh, uh, kill him? And the guy says, yes, may I kill him? Well, he says, you don't have to be so harsh. Isn't there a gradual way this can be done? And the heavenly creature says, no, there's no gradual way. It has to be done now. Do you want him? Or may I kill him? And the little lizard says, don't say yes. He has the power. If you say yes, he'll kill me. And you know, it'd be downright unnatural for you to be without me. <laughs> And it is sort of downright unnatural not to have a finger on your life and some control over yourself. And so uh, the fellow says, may I kill him? And he said, you know, I really didn't anticipate this. I'm not feeling quite up to surgery today. <laughs> Let me go back down below and I'll come back on another day and we'll talk about it. And the heavenly being says, there is no other day. Today is all day. And he says, may I kill him? And the guy falls at his feet and looks up and says, blast you. Except he uses another word. He says, blast you, why haven't you done it already? If you would, you could. And, uh, no, wait a minute. There's one line before that I must share with you. The guy moves in to grab him. And when he says, the guy backs away and says, Wait, you're burning me. And he said, uh, uh, You'll kill me if you kill him. He said, No, I won't kill you. Well, he said, You burned me already. He said, I didn't say it wouldn't hurt. I said it wouldn't kill you. And so he says, Blast you, why haven't you done it already? And falls, groveling at his feet. 
So then the heavenly creature reaches down and grabs the lizard and picks it up and snaps its back and hurls it down to the ground. And when he does, uh, Lewis stands and watches. And uh, he says, let me, let me find it. You'll be good students and let me read to you. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw, well, here, let me back up and read. Last year, go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering, whimpering, God help me, God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it broken back on the turf. Ow, that's done for, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched, and if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, not much smaller than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between huge and glossy buttocks. Suddenly I started back rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I have ever seen. Silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hoofs. At each stamp, the land shook and the trees dindled. I'll let you tell me what dindled means afterwards. The new-made man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It nosed his bright body. Horse and master breathed each into the other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I well knew what was happening. There was riding, if you like. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were only a shooting star far off on the green plain and soon among the foothills of the mountains. Then still like a star I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps, and quicker every moment till near the dim brow of the landscape so high that I must strain my neck to see them, they vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. While I still watched, I noticed that the whole plain and forest were shaking with a sound which in our world would be too large to hear, but there I could take it with joy. I knew it was not the solid people who were singing, the heavenly beings. It was the voice of that earth, those woods and those waters, a strange, archaic, inorganic noise that came from all directions at once, the nature or arch-nature of that land rejoiced to have been once more ridden and therefore consummated in the person of the horse. The teacher turns and says, 
Do you understand all this, my son? I don't know about all, sir, said I. Am I right in thinking the lizard really turned into the horse? Aye, but it was killed first. You'll not forget that part of the story. I'll try not to, sir. But does it mean that everything, everything that is in us can go on to the holy mountains? Nothing, not even the best and noblest, can go on as it is now. Nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial, will not be raised again if it submits to death. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Flesh cannot come to the mountains, not because it's too rank, but because it's too weak. What is a lizard compared with a stallion? Now, uh, there is something in us that is corrupt enough that when God says, can I totally possess you, we say, you'll hurt me. You'll deprive me. You'll make me less than what I am. When the reality is that there's nothing Christ ever touched that was worse after he touched it. And a part of you, if a part of you is better after he's touched it, or if a part of me, are you going to tell me that I won't be freer, stronger, if I'm wholly his? Now, if that's to be true, it's a work only he can do. But the thing about it is, that's why he died. To deliver me from bondage to sin. And the essence of sin is self-interest. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that we become selfless. But what does it mean? It means that the self within us is not taken away. It turns from a lizard into a horse. <laughs> we don't lose our identity. We find our identity. But the thing about it is, with that cleansing now, two wills become one. And we find that he is the lover of our souls. And he is our choice. There are two lines in the Psalms. One of them is, I will do thy will. And I can feel him grit his teeth. But there's another line that says, I delight to do thy will, O God. And that's freedom. And when it comes, then we're free to begin to think his thoughts. Because you see, before that, our protection of our own ego and our own rights will keep our reason, our captive reason, which John Dunn talks about. It will keep our captive reason rationalizing and saying there's bound to be another way. Now that doesn't mean that there won't be uh, uh, pain in it because he, he calls us to follow him but you will remember that even about the cross, the scripture says, for the joy that was set before him, 
he endured the cross, despising the shame. Can you feature a woman who was pregnant and didn't know what it meant to be pregnant and she was in the middle of labor pain? How different would she be from the woman who's waited for years to have a child and is going through labor pain? The thing I notice is that women can endure an amazing amount of pain if the prospect of the fulfillment of their desires is there. Now, sin blinds us to what God wants to do when he gives us what we recoil from. But you see, if we have his mind, then we can say, I know he does all things well, and the cup he gives me, it may be bitter in my mouth, but in my stomach it will be sweet, and it will settle well, because he does all things well. There's the kind of confidence and trust that makes a man strong or a woman and free. Now that's what I wanted to talk about tonight. Isn't that a great story from C.S. Lewis? And isn't there something inside you that says, you've either been there or you understand what he's talking about. But only Christ can liberate us from that which recoils from his will. And you really say, I choose your will, Lord, and I want it. Or do you still find a minority report in you that needs to be uh, taken out? He can do it. And it'll make a difference in your thinking if you let him.